City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, Performance American Theatre Wings Working in the Theatre Seminars, now in their 31st year, coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Professionals are brought together by the American Theatre Wing for these seminars to help provide an insight to what it's like to work in the theatre. Today's seminar is with six leading performers. We hope to learn not only about their preparation for a career in the theatre, but also about the drive, passion, and temperament needed to survive in the theater. I'm Isabel Stevenson, Chairman of the Board of the American Theater Wing. I would now like to introduce our moderator for this seminar, distinguished television interviewer and critic, and a member of the Wing's Advisory Committee, Pia Lindstra. Pia, would you Thank start? Thank you. Thank you. I can tell that we have a very passionate panel here today, full of ideas, wonderful actors, and I'm so happy to be amongst you. Brian Stokes Mitchell, who is Broadway's leading musical man today. <laughs> on the end, Claire Higgins, winner of the Olivier Award, now on Broadway in Vincent and Brixton. Brett Spiner, on Broadway. You know him from television, movies, as well as the gentleman on my left, Alec Baldwin, of course, you know from movies, television, and he's been in the theater uh, I saw you first in 86 in Loot. <laughs> a girl I fell in love with when I saw her in Thoroughly Modern Millie. Sutton Foster burst onto the stage in the most incredible way, uh, took my breath away. And a gentleman who has not taken my breath away yet, but <laughs> we don't know. And never Eddie will. <laughs> <laughs> you keep your Eddie. breath. <laughs> <laughs> you die. A comedian. <laughs> Eddie Izzard. Uh, who is now in the day in the death of Joe Egg, um, which is a very serious play, and you are a very funny man. I'd like to know how you were cast. Well, it's 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 got a huge amount of comedy in it. I mean, it's um, uh, being the story of uh, parents bringing up a mentally and physically disabled child doesn't look like a big sort of hey, let's go see that straight away. <laughs> but it's based on the true, uh, based on uh, the life story of Peter Nichols and his experience with his own daughter, uh, Abigail. And um, so he's got a lot of comedy in that, um, which could be, is dark. I don't think he likes calling it a black comedy, but it's, it's you're just laughing right up to the end. Um, and it's quite amazing having been a sort of student of comedy. The man of laughter, he can get into the play while everything is getting more and more hellish. Mm -hmm. So I was cast as, um, I mean, he actually said he wrote it for a stand-up comedian. Uh, but I've, I wanted to be an actor when I was a kid. I only got into, well, I, I couldn't get any parts at school and whatever, so I ended up doing comedy, then I ended up in stand-up. And so there's this big, curvy route back to trying to do drama. Um, and uh, so I've been trying to do more and more dramatic roles. It's a crossover role mm -hmm. for me. So, mm -hmm. 
So I was kind of a logical choice because it's got sketches in it. It's got talking to the, addressing the audience, and I come from that area, and it's got all the drama, which is where I've been trying to drive myself since about 93. You're all so well-known and so accomplished. Do you still have to audition? Brian, do you have to audition? Does everybody ever uh, not <laughs> <laughs> to get a part? <laughs> not, not, in, not in the theater world so much anymore, mm -hmm. but still in film and television. They're very, very separate worlds. And one of the things that is always a little disheartening to me is the fact that uh, a lot of the people that kind of run film and television don't spend much time in the theater, it mm -hmm. seems. Some of them do. Uh, but the vast majority don't. So when you go in, I'm, I go in very much as an unknown. Um, there's an advantage to that, too, that I find, is, is that one of the things I like about performing on Broadway is you kind of have a, a, a bit of fame, but you still are able to retain some of your anonymity, mm -hmm. which is very important to me, because I'm actually a rather private person, and I, I really cherish my anonymity. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of gives me the, the best of both worlds. In New York, people know me, and then I go to Wichita or, or you know, uh, Buchanan, West Virginia, and people don't know me so well there, so that's just fine. Sutton, how did you get that great part? Oh, well, I originally wasn't cast as the part. I was cast as the understudy in the out-of-town, the pre-Broadway tryout of Millie in La Jolla, California. And um, I was thrilled to be a part of it because I really enjoyed the show. I thought the show was brilliant, and I, I just wanted to be a part of it in any capacity. And I had auditioned to play Millie, but um, never could really show the creative team that I was capable of doing it in the auditions. Mm -hmm. I'm not a great auditioner. And... Uh, so they, I said, I'll do it, be the understudy, and they said, sure. So I went out to La Jolla, and about a week before we started previews, um, I think the universe took over, and I found myself being fitted for costumes, and I was thrust oh. into the spotlight and opened the show and cried for <laughs> hours and not knowing what the hell I was doing. And then um, they asked me at the end of the run if I would do it on Broadway, and I said, okay. And, and here we go. Well, you seem to burst forth fully formed, you know, like Venus. You came out, boom. Uh, I imagine it took a lot of training, though, before you... Absolutely. You and I'm there. still constantly training. I mean, I, I still have so much to learn, and um, I've learned so much this past year about the business and about what it is to do eight shows a week and to be in the spotlight and to the pressure and the responsibility of starring in a right. major Broadway musical with millions of dollars behind it. And, uh, um, and I'm constantly trying to become a better performer and keep stretching and become a better artist. Do you have to audition, Alec? Or do they, as everybody <coughs> know you now, so they... Well, yeah, it depends. I mean, I, the, I haven't had an audition for a play or a movie or anything like that, except one time recently I got asked to audition for a musical. <laughs> and I, never, I don't sing, and I've never sang. <laughs> and now that's the thing, is everyone's going to take voice lessons and, 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 uh, and sing. Uh, I just did a film with Matthew Broderick and talked a lot with Matthew about that, who hadn't sang mm. until he did How to Succeed. Mm. He hadn't sang legitimately and professionally. And so I was approached by um, uh, Cameron McIntosh mm -hmm. for the... Um, What's the movie that he uh, Nicholson did? Uh, Witches of Eastwick. Oh, yeah. And they did the production over in London of Witches of Eastwick, oh, the musical. Right. And <clears throat> they said, would you come in and would you meet and have voice lessons with Joan later and do the huh. work and go in and read for Macintosh's music director who was in New York. And uh, 
that audition ended my musical career. <laughs> 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 in, in under 20 minutes, my <laughs> <laughs> ended. Did, so. did he say you were bad? Or? Um, did you feel that in, 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 in unspoken ways, he said I <laughs> in inaudible ways. But are you good in the bathroom? I am good in the bathroom. Well, but I think I can sing, but for me, that whole world is, it's so binary. Acting, I feel like you can fake it. Acting is so subjective. What is one, some people are crazy about someone's acting technique and other people don't, don't like it. And for me, I have such respect for singing that to me, you either can sing or you can't. And if you can't really sing beautifully, as people here can do, why bother? I don't want to do... I've had people contact well, me. What about producers. Rex Harrison? <coughs> exactly. They say, do you want a Rex Harris in your way? Do some thing. part. And I say, no, I do not want to. I leave that to Rex. <laughs> there, there's a haiku that says, even in the insect world, some can sing, some can't. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Can you sing as well as act? Do I sing? Yes. I, I, yes. Well, you do. I mean, it's, again, subjective. But, uh, I, You're ready for I it. Think I think I do. Be <laughs> no. Well, I'd be happy to. <laughs> <laughs> so I have uh, sung on Broadway a oh. number of times. Oh, all right. Uh, uh, you've reviewed them, actually. Can <laughs> 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 I like you? Oh, this is <laughs> poorly, I might add. <laughs> no, 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 I, I, I don't I, do that now. <laughs> but I think what's amazing is that, you, and I'm not just saying this for your benefit, is the people up here who sing in these shows, they also c they can sing and act. Yes. I've yes. gone to, to musical recitals. Oh. I went to one the other day, and a guy got up and sang uh, a, a number from your show. And <clears throat> he sang, and the guy was incredible. He had a beautiful voice. He was fantastic. And then, but I wonder, can he act? I mean, right. it's, it's very often people can't do both. Right. Mm. They not cannot do all. both. Not at all. Claire, do you have to audition at this point in your life, or do they just call you up on the phone and say, come and do this? Yeah, I mean, England is, uh, the English theatre world is pretty small, really, so, um, and I've been in it for quite a long time now, <laughs> so, no, usually I'd get, um, send a script or somebody will call me up, call my agent up, mm -hmm. but it is, it's a very small world, and, um, as Brian was saying, um, it's the same in England. The theatre world is very different from the film and television world. They're really separate entities. Mm -hmm. And um, I agree with you, a lot of film people don't really bother to go to the theatre, which I think is a real shame because that's where actors generally learn their craft. And, um, why is that, do you think? You know, why? I really do not know. I'm really puzzled by it. I don't know why there's this huge divorce mm -hmm. between these disciplines when they're exactly the same thing. Yes. Um, I think it's a mystery to me. I think it's probably a tension span crossed with, um, you know, if you're going to see, if you, if you get to a place where you're, you know, um, you can get tickets by saying, could you get me some tickets for this mm -hmm. and just get it sorted out because you're Hollywood or whatever. And then if you're going to a show, you've probably got to see people. If you see a film, you can just see it, not see it, walk out halfway through. It's, it's, um, it's more involving, I think, going to theatre. Mm. Um, and it's, it, it seems more of a, a mental effort, so <laughs> Hollywood's got to fly over and go and see it, if it's that kind of thing, so the film people tend not to see it. I don't know whether the independent film people of New York see a lot of theatre, does that? I think oh, you're right, mm. I think <clears throat> that theatre is much more of a, I mean the French, say, they don't say, I'm going to see a play, they say, j'assiste à une pièce, I'm going to help with a play, oh, really? mm. <laughs> which is oh. much more um, nice. a sort of joining in thing, and I yeah. think that's, that's right. cool. To me, it's almost the only sort of 
were one of the only meaningful kind of public rituals we have left. It's a sort of secular ceremony, almost. And I think it's a joyous thing and a wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. And um, I kind of almost, I'm slightly in mourning for the ease with which we can access television and film. As you say, it's mm. on if I want to see this, off if I don't want to see it. Right. There's no commitment but films to different. one's enjoyment of it or to yeah. one's... Wouldn't you say that the film's a bit... You have to still go out for film. I mean, television, on, click, click <laughs> off. But that film still is that commitment of going out and for people making a night of it. But they, uh, the price, obviously, is, is the other thing. Oh, that yes. With the higher prices, a certain section of society goes to theatre. Yeah. Film true. is more it egalitarian. Everyone goes Anyone to film. Go. So people feel kind of somewhat cooler by film mm. because it's more streety. Theatre's more pulled away, reserved, kind of ivory towerish. It's mm. an audience, and it oh, sets up that image. Uh, I think that in the theatre, people have to th you know, obviously think more. Um, you know, a lot of people who want uh, film entertainment, for the most part now, is like a snack mm -hmm. food. Yeah, you don't. <laughs> you, know, you can sort of check there's out. A, there's a minimal amount of work you have to do. There's, I mean, it's not. Think of a film that can, compares to Stoppard on the level of intellectual uh, exercise you have to do while you're watching the piece. But the divorce you talk about, <coughs> that's interesting to me, is I know a lot of film and television producers who love the theater, and who go to the theater and are crazy about the theater, and still won't consider. Not that they boycott predominantly theater actors, but they don't think about them because they think about them as people who are very devoted to acting and very muscular in their acting. And that's not what, what's required in films very often these days. Yeah. What the people, sometimes we go through periods where the biggest stars in the film business are people who replicate the same thing over and over again. Do you think the movie's got smaller? <laughs> well, I think, I, I, think, I think that the acting has been taken out of the movies. Right. Mm, Not an independent film. I mean, there's a whole world of film where, where acting is what's called for. But in big Hollywood studio filmmaking, the acting has been subtracted from those films as much as possible because that's why effects and, uh, and, and uh, explosions and design and all these things, you don't have to coax a computer out of its trailer. You don't have to worry. You don't have to worry if a computer just broke up with its boyfriend or is, is ill or whatever. The more they can take the human element out of the movie, because it's a technical medium, the happier they've become over the last 20, 25 years, I believe. Yeah. Well, let's get back to theater because we're here yeah. to talk about <coughs> yes. this. Is a Please. seminar on the theater. I beg of you. Yes. So the, uh, I heard an actress say at another seminar, did that her true teacher, and I like that expression. Her true teacher had taught her how to find the voice of her character in a play. And I'd like to ask each of you how you find the voice, unless you're using your own voice, which presumably on the stage one doesn't. Did you, for example, I'll start with you, Brad. Did, did, how do you find the voice of your character in Lifetimes 3? In my case, it had to be beaten out of me by the director. But we're in a theater, actually, uh, a unique theater. We're in, uh, in, the, in the round at the Circle in the Square. And uh, that that's, has its own peculiar difficulties. Uh, because at, at all times, there's someone behind you as well as in front of you. So you, you, you really have to be loud. And the first week we were in the theater, I kept going to the director and saying, are you sure I'm not screaming? And he said, no, you're not. I can barely hear you. And I was shouting. And, uh, and I've, I've asked people since, does it seem like we're unusually loud? And they say, no, you sound just like a normal person talking. Mm. So. Mm. What do you mean by voice? What do I mean by voice? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you say, find the voice of the theater. What do you mean? 
Right. Well, the meaning? That was, yes, that was your uh, question, that was, You're asking it? me a question. Well, I think it means <laughs> the sound of that particular character, because you can't, unless you're doing something that's all aspects of yourself. Well, I think all characters are ultimately aspects of yourself, um, because then you can root yourself in reality. Millie, uh, sorry, I'm... Hello. Uh, Millie is actually okay. rooted. No, I I speak. <laughs> Millie is definitely rooted from my. I mean, from me, I take right. aspects of my own self because then, therefore, I'm completely comfortable when I'm on stage for two and a half hours each night. But as far as like little colors that mm -hmm. color Millie, um, a lot of my character came out of from my, my body. I started. I watched a lot of uh, films. Bringing up Baby. I watched Catherine Hepburn and the, the Women, and got the style of the times. Right. And you know, it's like everything just sort of came from there. And then. As far as the way I speak or the, mm -hmm. the voice that I use, it's Sutton. What about you, in, in your? I think you have to find the sound of your character, don't you? I, well, I don't. It's or interesting the, the way you're, you're putting it. I, um, I've come to acting, uh, even though I wanted to do it when I was seven. It, it's been I've been late getting there, so I've come through other different mm -hmm. mediums. Uh, of comedy actually before I came in. So my approach, I'm, I'm still on a learning curve, and I, I sort of know some. I know some very weird things about, or I've, I've picked up in just a very odd way. I've come in there, not there. I've come in there with a lot of other baggage. I've done street performing, for God's sake, you know, and, and it's just weird. So for me, I, I'm now at the stage where I'm trying to pull characters to me. I don't know if that is the technique other people use, and I get the people like, impression that like uh, Olivier was doing was pulling obviously some aspects of his characters, but some of these diverse characters, not just Livy, but anyone who's doing an acting role, they could do an mm -hmm. acting role that's quite away from them, you know, playing Nazis. Mm -hmm. Hopefully most people who play Nazis mm -hmm. aren't Nazis. And, <laughs> and um, you know, the, they've just got to take certain aspects of themselves and then fill in a whole lot of others from mm -hmm. somewhere else. Um, at, the, at the moment, I found that people would say to me, you're in that film, you're in that film, I didn't see you. Like, I was, I was doing very disparate <laughs> oh. acting, as if I was going, trying to get that guy, then that guy, and I thought, I'd better pull some more of this out of myself. And so I'm, I'm really, I'm making it up as I go along, because I don't know, I did accounting. <laughs> and so they don't Before, that's teach how you got you. in to show business. Yeah, accounting and financial management with mathematics. So. Oh, very good. <laughs> That'll do it. And, but you uh, played Macbeth. That can't be... You didn't. Wouldn't you weren't yourself on stage if you're doing Macbeth. Good God, no. <laughs> so, where do you find his sound? I mean, to me, <clears throat> you know, there's two, there's two things I find that when you do these pieces, sometimes I love to play someone who's as far away from me as I possibly can. Let's do funny voices and let's do accents and let's do dialects and I, I want to get as far away from my own, uh, you know, demeanor as I can. And for me. I guess the voice comes from the disposition of the per of the person. I often sit when I do a piece and I think, is this person brave in the world? Are they confident in the world? Are they timid in the world? Are they sexually confident? Are they sexually insecure? Are they someone who walks into a room and they're, they have a lot of clarity about what they're doing in the piece and why they're doing it and they have a lot of strength? Or are they a weak person and are they someone that is insecure and questions themselves? And I think more often in film you can make that work because you can modulate your voice more naturalistically in film. Mm -hmm. And in the theater, <coughs> you, you have to send it out there, you know, especially in a Broadway house. But I find, it, for me, it all begins with the disposition of the person. Are they a mm -hmm. confident and secure person or are they kind of a wounded and fragile person? And, you know, and when I did Macbeth, it was like, you know, everything was about the action. 
you know, everything was about, you know, so when, everything to me had to be very, you know, when he was upset, he was very upset. <laughs> <coughs> and when he was, and when he was homicidal, he was very homicidal. And when he killed people, I mean, I remember uh, Zach Braff, who's now on that show Scrubs on NBC, I remember I would kill him every night, and I would stab him with this sword, and he would be downstage, this is the audience, and he'd be facing upstage, and he'd be stab him with the sword, and then I'd just kind of leave it there and look at him. It was like a moment, I just like say the kill, you know? <laughs> and then I would put my foot on his chest and peel him off my sword. <laughs> and I thought, how can we make it as vulgar and as disgusting as you can and make it as violent as you can? Because this was a guy that loved to kill people in battle. Just, that's, what his, um, that's what his main meat was, so to speak. Claire, you <coughs> have in your part that you're playing, this is a woman who has a secret. Hmm. She's in love with young Vincent van Gogh. <laughs> and how did you find her style, her her demeanor, so that you would convey she's keeping the secret? Well, really, uh, I'm, I'm not sure I quite put it like that. I, I, mm -hmm. I agree with Alec, and I think it does come from disposition. I mean, for instance, if you're playing a severely depressed person, then which I am in this play, then you're going to have to find a way of being true to that, but yet being able to communicate it to the audience in a perfectly audible manner. Right. Um, the, the, I think the thing that I do really is, I always imagine myself, and I think Sutton was saying something rather like this, I imagine myself as being a, an, an organ and I pull the stops out to various mm -hmm. points. Um, I don't turn into somebody else. I, I use bits of myself mm -hmm. and pull them out at various mm -hmm. levels to modulate a new person. So, and the voice automatically becomes a part of that process. So, and I find a rather wonderful thing happens between you and the text, as it were, with a, a well-written piece. The text will have character tricks in it almost. The author will have written certain little tricks that you can hear. So that becomes part of your vocal work on this character. A character may use one word a lot or may use, have a certain way of driving a sentence through. Mm -hmm. So that then becomes part of your vocal mannerism with that character. Then you will start to hear yourself in rehearsal perhaps speaking rather higher than you normally do, mm -hmm. or rather lower. Mm -hmm. or, but that, that's, that then becomes part of the process. But for me, the image is very much this organ with the stops out at certain levels, and through rehearsal that may change, and through performance that may change. Brian, do you have an image that you use? When you approach a character? I kind of let the script tell me what it wants to be. I, uh, one of my master teachers, one of the things that he always said is that the uh, actor's first obligation is to the playwright. Mm -hmm. So I always make sure that I'm being as true as I can to whatever the intention of the playwright was as best as I can see it. Um, a show like Man of La Mancha is kind of fun. It's a great playground mm -hmm. because I kind of get to play three characters in, in the show. I get to play Cervantes uh, first, who's closer, I suppose, to me, although it takes place in the 15th century. And because the style of the writing is not contemporary, I cannot really use my contemporary cadence and voice. It just doesn't mm -hmm. lend itself to the material. And then as you go into the next character, I introduce Alonso Quijana, who is this character then that becomes Don Quixote. Alonso Quijana is this old, frail man, basically, who in real life, in real times, was probably 60 years old, but in nowadays it would be probably more like somebody well into their 80s, 90s, mm -hmm. you know, uh, like that. Um, so I wanted to choose a, a particular sound and mm -hmm. voice for him. 
that would set him apart when he becomes Don Quixote. And one of the interesting things about it was, you know, well, how do you do that? Because if you, you can't sing the impossible dream like an old man. No. Uh, people want to hear the impossible <laughs> dream song. You know, <laughs> the impossible dream song. And so one of the ways that I started rationalizing it in my head is kind of when he becomes Don Quixote, he, it reconnects him to his youth. It reconnects him to his, his, that solid part of him. Mm -hmm. um, it reconnects him to his gut, to his passion and all of that. So that in a sense when I start singing, any, most any of the songs that I sing uh, as, as Don Quixote, I'm singing as, as he th thinks he is. He thinks he's this young, vibrant uh, man. Um, but you, you found out at the end of the show, as he gets this confrontation with the Knight of Mirrors, as it's called, he looks at it and sees, oh, I'm not that. I'm not this young person that I feel. And I don't know if there's anybody in the world who, s who stops feeling young. I think we always feel young the older we get. And we look in the mirror and go, wow, that's me. I don't feel like that at all. And I think that's the, the confrontation that begins. And then at the very end of the show, he becomes very, very frail, uh, Alonso Quijana again. And we kind of hear him at his weakest uh, point. So it's fun. I get to explore all these different voices and then switching in between them because the story switches in, in between it and finding the clearest way to be able to do that. But it's not only with my vocal voice, it's with my physical, my body language. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I just, I, I, I'm a, a obsessive about and I love people's body language. And that really, I think, is one of the great joys of the theater, mm -hmm. whereas film is right in your face, right in your eyes. In the theater, you get to use your whole body in very subtle, yeah. interesting, fascinating ways. In New York, where Claire and I were talking about, one of the great things about New York, wow, you can see all kinds of body language <laughs> just on the street. <laughs> <laughs> the to continue with you just for a moment, there are, there are I was going to say none, but I can't think of another one, leading man now of your generation in the American musical theater. Is it like being a tenor in the, in the opera? There are just so few of you? <laughs> where, 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 why? Oh, I don't know. Is I'm it just so hard? It, I mean, it must be so incredibly complex to become a man who can sing and dance and act and is good looking. I mean, you've got to have all that to be a leading man <laughs> in a musical. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I, I think there's, I a, lot of, I think there's a lot of people out there who want it. You know, it's not, that there's, it's not like you do what you do when there's not a lot of people out there that want to have that. Yes. Uh, you scared them all away. Kiss me, Kate. I mean, everything. I, there's no room for anybody else. You're doing them all. But I, I just wonder why, if the technique of doing this is something that you said you had a, a great teacher. I've had great teachers. I've had many, many great teachers. And some have been acting teachers, and some have, had, some have not been. Some have been like Joseph Campbell, or some have been oh. like... Uh, Life uh, teachers. Uh, pardon? Life teachers. Life teachers, absolutely. Mm. And I think perhaps my deepest teachings have come from them. My teachers have been my parents. My teachers have been people that you see on the news or, or, or in all these other areas. That's the great thing, I think about acting is that once you, or anything really, once you learn how to learn, all you have to do is start, the world <laughs> is a most wondrous, incredible place, and people are so incredibly fascinating. And all, once you learn how to learn, and learn how to look at it, and learn how to observe it, 
And I guess the trick is what you learn in acting is learn how to then take that into your body and then be able to bring that into a stage and turn that into something that is meaningful and communicative mm -hmm. to an audience. I think that's the real trick of it. But, but how do you do that? How do you learn that? I'm not telling. <laughs> <laughs> Wise man. Wise man. Brian Stokes. <laughs> well, did you have a, a great teacher? Uh, I, I did have a great teacher, actually. Uh, I, I think of him more of, as, a, as a Mr. Chips, sort of. Because um, uh, I've learned nothing from life, actually. <laughs> uh, I keep hoping. Uh, maybe today. Uh, but, no, I had a great teacher. And uh, he was... Uh, I, had a, I had this great teacher in high school. Uh, who made a difference to so many people's lives, uh, everyone who came into contact with him. Mm. And uh, there are many people who are in professional show business today who were in my class in high school. Mm. Uh, both the Quaid brothers, Randy and Dennis Quaid, were in this class. Where uh, was this school? In Houston, Texas. Houston, Texas. Yes, really? breeding ground of great talent. Yes, <laughs> and, uh, okay. <laughs> uh, but it, he, he made such a difference to me, and it, I really consider myself incredibly lucky to have come across somebody that early in life who sort of set me on a path and said you can actually do this by the way and let me encourage you and send you on your way and uh, I'm ever grateful for that. Has anybody been discouraged? Was there somebody who said don't don't do this? My mother. Your mother? She <laughs> 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 really? said don't do it. Yes, I, You I, have I'm no talent, she said. Well, no, I remember I was about 13 and I came from quite a large family, and I remember wanting desperately to become an actress. And I used to actually steal money and go to tap dancing lessons and things <laughs> and run away from school. And I, I came up with this plan, because I thought we were a bit overcrowded anyway in our house. And I came down one Sunday after church, and I said, uh, Mommy and Daddy, I've got a plan. I'm going to go away to stage school, and I'm going to train to be an actress. And um, make lots of money and it's all going to be marvellous. And my mother slapped me across the face <laughs> <laughs> and said, how dare you! It was as though I'd announced, Mummy and Daddy, I'd like to go and walk the streets for the rest of my life. And I was sent upstairs to do extra Latin. And you thought so, that would discourage you. Yeah, I, I felt pretty discouraged about but that. But that didn't um, stop you, apparently. No, I just got very silent about it all. I see, I see. Anybody else was discouraged from yeah, a life on the boards? Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> in college, I went to Carnegie Mellon uh, University. It's a lovely school. Uh, it wasn't for the best school for me, but it was a, it's a fine school for some. Uh, but I did go for a year and uh, was told by professors that I would never succeed, never make it. And, and now you're like, hey. Now I'm alone. Uh, <laughs> uh, Hello, Sutton. <laughs> <laughs> I left school and right. I, I was oh, looking gosh. at, I moved home and worked at uh, oh. weighted tables and, oh. and uh, was looking at colleges to go into something else. I just thought, well, I, I should look at other things and then ultimately was dragged back into the theater. My, my heart wouldn't let it go, so. Oh. Well, you come from a family of actors, so perhaps there was no escape. Well, well for them it was different. My, my got into this, and I was working and did a, the first job I did was a soap here in New York for a couple of years, and I was living in New York. And <clears throat> my brothers would be sitting home in my mother's house, and they'd be 
you know, I could think I can say this safely. They would probably probably be stoned and drunk out of their minds or something, <laughs> sitting in my mother's TV room watching TV. And I think they literally would sit there and go, oh, you know, man, if he's on TV, <laughs> he should be on TV. I don't get it, man. If Bozo's on TV. Because <laughs> I'm the much hated oldest brother. Oh, right? I see. So they were like, man, why not us, man? And they all just ran. And they did. Really, <clears throat> already breathes real contempt. I think. Eddie, were you ever discouraged? Uh, did anybody say? Well, yes, there was. I think generally, um, not getting any parts at school. Uh, it was this initial thing, and um, and I and I thought it was either because they thought I was crap or I was crap, and I can't work it out. <laughs> With pure objective hindsight, maybe I was just crap and got better a bit later on, or maybe they just thought I was crap. I don't know. I don't know. So um, there was there was that, but I just had a long period of no, and then you know, and then got to college and. And I said I was going to leave stuff accounting because I wasn't I wasn't doing that in the first place. I mean, I was just pretending. Well, you know, I but I said to the guy who ran the drama place, I said I'm going to go get an agent in London, and he laughed in my face. And it was that kind of. But but this is not anything specific. Specific specific. Uh, my dad was was saying as long as you're happy. My stepmother wasn't into it, and then nothing happened for ten years as well. So. So everyone was sort of right. It, I didn't, I couldn't do it, and there was nothing happening, and it was all proving that it wasn't going to happen. Then it, I turned it around. Oh. Um, yeah. So it, was it's there all a teacher in your life? Uh, not really. You? Um, not really. There, there, there was a, there was a teacher at school who gave me my first parts, but there was no big life mm -hmm. teaching. I mean, I just sort of stumbled. I'm trial and error. I mean, coming out as being a transvestite actually was probably the biggest weird thing. <laughs> so, sounds very bizarre, but you know, to tell everyone you're transvestite and not then hang yourself in the third reel that normally happens in films. Because they do, don't they? Hey, the guy who was dressed, oh, he's dead. Oh, he's dead. <laughs> he was a mournful soul. Yeah. All transgender people, they killed themselves. Um, you know, and it used to be gay and lesbian people were in that boat, and now they now run things or have will and grace with it. It's the whole <laughs> But if I was a transvestite character coming, I'd still hang myself. <laughs> so, um, so getting outside that loop and getting into a very positive frame of mind on that uh, was some sort of weird life teaching experience. Um, gave me confidence from outer space. So, so that then applied. That, that sort of came through. I changed. I also changed my methodology. As, so most of my stuff is accidental. I used to try. I wanted to get somewhere very fast. I was. Uh, I was watching, well, I wanted to be a child actor, then I wanted to be a teenager, because I wanted to be a, I was 18 and I was ready, and then I was 30 and it started happening. So there was an enormous amount of, God, wow, that's a sign. So nothing happened, and I tried to get somewhere very fast, so 18, let's go, let's go. Okay, right, red television, I used to, I used to hitch down from college to places and, and, and try and phone up people, pretend I was agents recommending myself. I used to do real, <laughs> I used to do real long shots. Um, I was going to get in that, you know, right, and then I was going to get something by the time I was 25, I was supposed to get in a comedy television series like Monty Python, and I was 24 and a half, and I thought, this plan is not working. <laughs> <laughs> so I changed it into, okay, I'll get somewhere as slow as possible, stuff the speed thing, let's just make it so good that eventually people go, oh, wow, what are you doing? And then when that started working, I thought, yeah, this is much more fun, because stuff the age thing, let's just, who cares that, oh, it's crap, but he's only seven. <laughs> <laughs> and who says, this is 
genius stuff, but it took a hundred years to make. Still, it's genius. You know, so I realized the, the time thing was not important. It was just trying to do good stuff, and that's the mantra that I applied. And I went solo as well, and that meant I could just develop my own weird thing. And um, so it's, it's come from that. Have there been any teachers who've been harmful? For instance, did you go to a, the RADA or other? I went to Lambda, Lambda. Um, London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art in London. Yes. Um, no, I, I have to say I was extremely lazy at drama school. Having, <laughs> having got there, um, I was I was I was really rather badly behaved and rather lazy and hadn't um, hadn't ever been to London before. <laughs> and um, I was sort of almost sacked from um, drama school. <laughs> And I didn't have any bad teachers. I, 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 I would say I didn't have any particularly <coughs> inspiring teachers. Ah. I did have a very inspiring teacher at school who was completely mad. And Miss um, Clements, she was amazing. She had long hair all in a bun, and she taught us English and drama. And at the end of the class, she'd, she'd take the pin out, and her hair would go, and she'd say, scream, girls, scream. <laughs> <laughs> and we would, and it was the best bit of fun we had at school. <laughs> She inspired me. She was. I wanted to be like her. I wanted to be mad with a lot of hair. <laughs> Do audiences teach you anything? Hmm? Do audiences teach you anything? Every single night. Yes. I have to say that's probably the best huh. teacher I've ever had is an audience. And I was talking about this to um, someone yesterday in the play and saying, it is extraordinary now. I, I can tell. Um, as soon as I walk on stage, the quality of the silence, what kind of audience it's mm -hmm. going to be. Yes. Really? Now that is, yes. to me, amazing when I think about that. I can tell you exactly what kind of house they are before I've even opened my mouth. What is it, a vibrancy? Yes. It? It's an actual tangible feeling to mm -hmm. me, yeah. Yes. I agree. Yes. Do you have the yes. same? Absolutely, yeah. yes. You, I can tell within the first three minutes of the yeah. show. But when you say that, what can you tell? They're going to applaud a lot? Or, it's just or? a sense. It's like... Um, the uh, first line I'll say, if, if uh, it just depends. Sometimes if the no one laughs, you go, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Either I'm really off or the audience is tired, you know, there's a, or it's hot or something, you know. It just, uh, you can just sort of tell. You can actually, you, it sounds like rubbish. It's his weird. It has a, hey, we're all mystical and hey, we're touching crystals and stuff. But <laughs> um, as a street performer, I can actually do it for venues as well and as a stand-up. I, I can actually go in and vibe a good room. It's very odd. You can actually vibe spaces that will work and which won't. Even on the street, uh, well, sp specifically on the street, we found we had to do that. You'd actually just stand there and, and almost go glazed-eyed, and you could feel from the human traffic walking around whether there was an, the energy was low enough that they would stop yeah. and watch, because certain places people just keep going because so it was a way through. Yeah. Um, so you can actually vibe the rooms as well, yeah. e on their own, before people come into it. It yeah. really it sounds very mystical, but it's... Um, well, maybe it is a little bit mystical. There's nothing wrong with no. that. <laughs> it's fantastic. Do you yeah. find that mystical. to be the case? Mystical is the wrong word. I mean, I mean, it sounds airy fairy uh, nonsense. Right. Uh, but well, it is in fact mystical. Don't hang yourself in the bathroom. <laughs> 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 but that's what that's what depressed. people who are not mystical would say that. But I mean, I don't. I consider myself spiritual, rather less mystical. In life times three, can you tell in the audience well, uh, what they're reacting to? Uh, I'm not sure what they're reacting to exactly, but I do have this sense that there is a collective audience personality. That's yeah. yes. and, uh, and which is so strange because it's made up of 1,600 people, exactly. but for some reason they're all thinking the same thing. It's so <laughs> weird and, every and time. You can do a show night after night and get enormous laughs on the same line, and then suddenly this night comes when not one person in the audience thinks that line is funny. It's and the weirdest <laughs> thing. And, 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 and I think it's established. But, well, I, I personally think it's one person. 
who comes in <laughs> what, and, and has such a strong vibe themselves that they oh, say, okay, everyone, follow me. Oh, and, and you do. It's so That's true. true. It's I the totally agree. audience member, exactly. perhaps. Exactly. I think it's an absolute tribute to the reality of the uh, collective unconscious. I mean, I really oh, absolutely right. agree with it. An audience assumes one identity on any given night, they become yes. one animal. Mm -hmm. It is extraordinary and it's real. Have you had that experience? Well, I, it depends on the material. You know, I, the first play I did on Broadway was Orton, when I did mm -hmm. the Orton piece. And they had done the play at Manhattan Theatre Club. Mm -hmm. And then they moved it, David Merrick moved it <clears throat> to Broadway. And you could tell when you had an Orton crowd, there were certain lines that you'd float out there. There was certain English phrasing and, you know, things that aren't common usage to an American audience. And we knew when we had a kind of blue-haired Broadway crowd, and we knew when we had an Orton, some Orton files there. But you were talking about teachers before, <clears throat> and I wanted to make sure I mentioned this, that uh, for me, the people that I've learned the most from in the work I've done, well, there's two things I want to mention. That is, uh, other actors are the people that I've learned the most from. Mm -hmm. I have learned the most from other actors. And following that is this idea, when you talk about how do you deal with the frustrations in the beginning, for me, it, it's harder the uh, the way I feel about what I'm doing is harder the older I am than when I was young. Mm. Like when I was young, I, when I was 22 years old and I was running around New York and someone sat me down when I did my first TV show, I did a soap opera and they said, and I could, I looked back retrospectively and I could see that they knew I was a complete idiot. I was like Gomer Pyle to them, you know. <laughs> and they said, and they could, I could see them looking at each other, they go, we're gonna pay you $350 an episode to do this show. <laughs> <laughs> and they were watching me. And I sat there and I went, you know, golly, hey, y'all huh? gonna pay me $350 an episode. <laughs> Man, I never made so much money in my entire life. And they all said, and literally the producers of the show were like, <laughs> we got a live one. We got a real boob on our hands. You know what I mean? In the beginning, it's all almost for fun and for free and you're having yeah. a good time. Mm -hmm. It's when you've been doing it for 20 years and you hit a patch. I mean, I had a year of my life where I couldn't do, on a creative self-expression level, I couldn't do anything I wanted to do. I couldn't do anything. I mean, and you have to go a year where you're going, I can't get it going. You know what I mean? I'm going to do movies to make a living that are all, eh, you know, things <laughs> I don't want to do. Whatever. And you're not getting off, so to speak, yeah. on anything you're doing. I'd love to hear people talk about yeah. that, what they do when yeah. they don't get to... You know, how when they, when keep, they hit a lull or a dip, how do you keep it up? That's the way to put it. They do. <laughs> well, um, it, not about careerism. So yeah, okay. Well, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I keep it up, so to speak. By um, well, I have a sort of other life, so I'm quite lucky, really. I, I trained to be a psychotherapist, and um, that's a whole other world. Except that it isn't in a way, because of course the boundaries—they're both studies of the human condition, acting and. Hmm. Psychotherapy, so really they, they, the boundaries merge a good deal. And I, I'm going on to study Jungian psychology in more depth now, and that for me is the most exciting and fascinating world, and I will never be bored again as long as I live. Mm. That is a fantastic feeling. Mm. That's, mm. that's just a brilliant feeling. So, and it's also a good feeling of safety because if the whole of your creative endeavor is predicated on acting, I think you're in a very shaky position as a human yeah. being, yeah. um, ego-wise and creativity and in every other way. I think when it's predicated on a rather greater mind than your own, and you, you found an original thinker you can believe in, and you want to go on and on and study that, and it's an endless study, then you're in, a, in, in pretty good shape to keep yourself busy <laughs> when you, when, when, on your off days. Yeah. 
yeah. in theater in the round, how does the audience affect you? They're practically on stage with you. They are. And so yeah. how do you work with that? Uh, well, you know what? I, I think the lesson we've learned from doing it is not to work with it, is to do the play. And, and to hope that uh, they come along for the ride uh, in one way or another, and not to have expectations of the audience, and to trust the play and what you've rehearsed and just do it. But don't you have to act with the back of your head or something part of the time? <laughs> because those of us who are looking at your back, don't well, you have to do I, I, things? There is. I, yeah, the back of my head is, is one of my best angles, actually. <laughs> 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 Let me show you, actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you have to do things for me. Wow. <laughs> oh. uh, thank you. It's just amazing. <laughs> <laughs> There is a history for that. You have to send that, out though. energy behind you, you perhaps. Do, you well, you do, normally indeed. act with your whole body anyway, don't you? Yeah, you don't right. just sort of turn bits on well, but I, I, I don't I, know, but I would think I'd just be going forward. <laughs> Television, you just go forward. <laughs> I get the sense that the audience wants me to turn around, though. I don't know. <laughs> I'll tell you, it's a bit of a nightmare doing stand-up in the round, because yeah. uh, there's no other person facing the other direction. Right. So you just go round and round, <laughs> trying to bring everyone <laughs> in, in. Yeah. and you go nuts. So I advise... That one man, one person shows, solo shows, Oof, don't yeah. do oh, not in the round, <laughs> not in the round. Do you try to adjust to an audience? Do you try to change? No, no, I think you try and persuade them that if they're not reacting right, they're wrong. <laughs> 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 I've dismissed a couple of audiences, which is amazing for performance. As a, yeah, I, I sent them away, they were crap. <laughs> <laughs> But you you can only do it in street performing because oh. Oh. they don't pay to the end, so there's no, no deal here. And they came up, and I was, me and my partner, we were busting our guts, ripping our guts out there, putting down stuff that was not very good, but was done with such <laughs> stuff. And, uh, and they were just, yeah. So I said, no, you're no good, go. And, and then they wouldn't go. Then they got very interested. They became very theatrical. Uh. I did this twice. And the second time, my partner thought I was joking. And I was like, no, they're crap. And I was off. And he kept coming on and saying, do you want him back on? And I go, I'm not coming on. They're just rubbish. And he just thought it was a joke. And the audience wouldn't go then. <laughs> <laughs> what about these noisy audiences, like phones going off? Oh, Is that ever oh, man. Oh. <laughs> my, favorite, my favorite are when, uh, in the front row, this has happened several times at Millie. You'll have some children passing a bag of Doritos. Oh, mm. my God. It kills me. Oh. I'm like, why are they eating? And the parents are just sitting there. Sometimes you do a show and the audience, like, let's say you do a, a straight play and there's some comic element to it. So it kind of throws you because you do the play and sometimes an audience will laugh at all the laugh lines but give you a very mild reception at the end of the show. Then there's people who don't laugh at all the hot button lines crazy. during the show. Then they give you a standing ovation. <laughs> they're sobbing. <laughs> I did Streetcar on Broadway, and we would sometimes, I had to learn that there were people who sometimes, who their great respect they're, playing, they're paying to the performance and to the production is oh. that they're just listening very right. intently. They might not be very vocal in their appreciation. And one time, this young woman, like in the front row, she took a picture of us on stage in the middle of like the, one of the biggest scenes in the play, oh. and uh, the rape scene. And so... Uh, uh, when it was over, the following scene begins, the lights come up and we're playing cards, it's the last scene of the play. And I'm talking to my friends and I have this beer in my hand. And I, uh, I w I'm doing my lines and we're talking, and I walked up and I poured the beer right on the girl's head in the front row <laughs> of the theater. Oh no! And I, and look at this, she's, <laughs> she's like... <laughs> 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 I was like, 
I wish I took a picture of that. <laughs> and so I dumped this beer on this girl's oh, head, you know. No. I, I just was so, I, I mean, I got that way. I would do the show, and I would, like, mutter to the audience. If I thought we'd really nailed it, because you know, collectively in the company, yeah. when you've done a good show, and we would do a really, everybody was on, and the Everybody scanned it. We rode that wave, and we do it. And then everybody in the audience would be like this. And I would take my bow, and I would literally be going, "You bastards!" And you like mutter oaths at the audience that you hate them because they're so unappreciated. I hope I never see any of you ever again. I have to say, you know, sometimes when actors come off, and this really annoys me, actors say, "Oh, they're a terrible audience," and I. That always makes me say there's no such thing as a terrible audience. Mm -hmm. It's always the actors, as far as I'm concerned. And I don't know. Things that I really, no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't. I, I, I actually, and, and to me, if an audience is unresponsive, there's something going wrong with the energy on stage. And, and even stuff like cell phones, you know, people go, oh my God, a cell phone went off. Well, you know what? You can gauge two things from that. First of all, you can go, where the audience hear a cell phone go off, if the audience is going, oh, <laughs> it means they're on your side. That's yes. nice to know. Yes. If you and hear someone go, hello? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a problem. Secondly, it's a good test for you as an actor. Why should it interfere with your concentration? It's not in your world. So don't buy into it. I'm quite tough in that way. I think I, I, I'm, I'm quite tough, really. I don't think there's any such thing as a bad audience. And if there is, it's my job to make it a good audience. I really yeah. believe that. A lot I, of the times, too, sure. an, an audience, uh, there. When I was doing one of the first Broadway shows that I did, I ended up being out early on in it, and because uh, I sprained my ankle. And I remember sitting in the audience, and towards the back of the orchestra, and somebody had gone down in the lobby and was having a coughing attack, and you couldn't hear it from the stage. But the last half of the orchestra oh. was looking around, going, "What's going on? Is somebody dying down there?" Now the people on stage would not have a sense at all that that's something that's going on, and the right. and you just think, "Well, what's wrong? With why why am I losing the audience?" Right. Uh, there are all sorts of things that happen, or people get sick, or, or, yeah. or whatever. Sometimes you don't know. But from, from my taste, the, I think the audience is the, I, I consider them the last character of the play to come into a play. They really help, I think, uh, everybody shape the show, shape your character, shape your laugh, shape your timing, and then it changes. And that's, I think, what's so fun about the theater is that it's never the same way every night. Every audiences, and what we're all talking about, yeah. reading audiences, they're as different as every individual in an audience. And just as we as individuals can start becoming good at reading individual people, I think once you start performing and doing eight shows a week for any length of time, you start becoming a connoisseur of audiences also, <laughs> and appreciating and enjoying what they are. And sometimes it's even sections of an audience mm. that needs a little picking up. Or sometimes you'll go in and you can feel like before the show starts, oh, this, this audience is really giddy. Okay, oh. well, I, I can t play this laugh a little bit different here. Or this audience is really dead. Let me hit this section a little bit uh, quicker than I normally would, and then it'll get to this punchline in a different way. But it becomes... Uh, it's like an art. An art, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's exactly. It that's what, what's art. different about the theater than anything else. I, I consider yeah. it a long-form art because if you're lucky enough to get a show and a run that lasts a long time, right. over a long, long period of time, you're not only playing with mm. this character and the other actors on stage, you're playing with the audience. You're playing with this very subtle kind of yeah. esoteric energy almost that pervades a room and sometimes pervades the world. Wow, after 9-11 or after the war started or after right. things like that, you feel not only are we depressed as individuals, an audience is depressed and you understand that and sometimes you just do your best and you just know 
the audiences can only do so much. They just don't feel like laughing right now. Mm. I mean, you know what? It, it's, it's just a final footnote to this thing about audience noise. We had somebody last Saturday. Um, we came on to the matinee, and then I just came up and said, who the hell is that man coughing? That man <laughs> terrible, <laughs> terrible cough. And this man was coughing. And uh, the man wasn't coughing. He was dying. Mm. Oh. Oh. Um, yeah. So, oh. you know what I mean? So yeah. before you start going, oh, God, there's such a nightmare, why don't they shut up? <laughs> yeah. um, this was my, my favorite funny story of this was I did the, the off-Broadway production of Prelude to a Kiss in 1989 with Mary Louise Parker, Circle Rep Theater, and there was a very old woman and a very old man in the front row. 199-seat house, very intimate, very, you know, <laughs> of the material, we were all grooving and connecting with the audience, had to talk to the audience and address the audience as a narrator. And <clears throat> if anybody knows Craig Lucas's play about this kind of soul swap thing, as soon as I have this really tender scene, I kiss Barney Hughes or something I have to do, is like some really achingly beautiful, poignant moment, the older woman turns to the older man and goes, Murray, the girl is in the old man's body. <laughs> <laughs> the girl has gone into the old man's body, Murray. Do you understand? <laughs> Oh my I God. do this at the end of um, Vincent and Brixton. There's a scene where Vincent, is, no, it's all in silence and it's the end of the play. It's all rather marvellous. And, and we're sitting there and Vincent starts to draw the boots, you know, this famous drawing, drawing of the boots. boots. And this deep, dark silence. He's drawing the shoes. He's drawing the shoes. Mary is drawing the shoes. <laughs> It's the same woman. It's the same people. <laughs> Surely. Then everyone goes, shh, 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 get you. <laughs> did you have an experience with cell phones? Well, I did, but, you know, uh, uh, we all do, I'm sure. <laughs> okay. but the audience that I most remember, uh, I was doing a show uh, a few years ago at the Gershwin Theater, uh, 1776. It's an, an enormous theater. I think they're like 100 seats less than Yankee Stadium or something. I mean, it's like enormous. huge. And uh, every Wednesday afternoon, they brought in... Uh, uh, the an entire audience of inner city children, which was a great idea, uh, school kids, and uh, but they also also all had candy, and uh, oh. they seemed to be a cue. It was time to open the candy, and I swear it sounded like it was raining in the audience. It, it was, and and that was a, pro I, I mean, I respect the audience, and I know there's no bad audience, but uh, that was a show where we all saved our voices and just went <laughs> because. It, it, they had no idea. <laughs> what about directors? How do you work with a director? What do you look for in a director? Uh oh. Hmm? What do we look, what do we look for in a director? director? That is usually in place, isn't it? Well, in my gigs. Yeah, usually. I mean, you hope. I hope that they're going to be somebody. It depends on the show, really. Um, do you I, audition a director? Uh, not usually. This last time, I sort of got to, to have approval of a director, so that was kind of a nice thing. But usually, no, they audition they you. Audition <laughs> so, you know, you're trying to do your best to impress them. <laughs> but um, I always, I, I do in a sense that when I was doing Kiss Me Kate, um, which is a show at first that I did not want to do because I didn't care for the show. And, um, but Michael Blakemore, everybody kept coming up on the street and said, oh, Michael Blakemore's doing Kiss Me Kate, and I hear they want you to do it, and you're, he's the best director you'll ever work with, the greatest experience you'll ever have in your life. And this is, you know, totally unsolicited. And I thought, okay, and he directed Noises Off, one of the funniest plays I've ever seen. And I thought, wow, 
I can learn a lot from this guy. And that kind of comedy, that kind of high-wit comedy, was not something that I had done, really. So I thought, great, I'm in good hands here. Let me keep my mouth shut, listen to what he has to teach me, and do that. And he taught me great, great things. It was a wonderful, wonderful, knowledgeable, fun uh, man. And he directed in a very funny way because he, he wouldn't give you a line reading, but he, he would say things like, um, uh, well, you know, when, when, he, when he comes in, you know, uh, you should say, uh, 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 yes, how are you doing today? No, don't do it like that. But, and he'd always give you the perfect line reading. Every time he would say, don't do it that way. But he would, he would kind of respect the fact that you still needed to explore on your own. But otherwise, I like directors that kind of just let me go free and kind of guide yeah. me and give me ideas and concepts and, and a big playground to play in and kind of give me gentle guidance and just let me play and, and, and do what I want. But it w when I'm lost, like with uh, Michael Blakemore in, in a realm that I don't really know, it's great to have somebody like that. So it changes, I think, for me on show to show. Is the director important to you? Can you? Oh yeah. You hope that the director that you're working with has the ultimate vision, mm -hmm. because there has to be the problem sometimes with with shows is that there are like 80 cooks, mm -hmm. and you hope that one person has the ultimate vision and can therefore guide the rest of the creative team and the entire cast so that everyone's on the same page, and um, and then you also. You really want to have a trust. I would have never, I was thrown into Millie with a week of rehearsal, and I would never have been able to have done it without Michael Mayer completely guiding me in La Jolla and here in New York. I completely trusted him, and he trusted me, which was amazing because, uh, you know, I can barely trust myself. <laughs> so it was really nice to have someone that just completely guided me in the right direction. And of course, actors and actresses can't really see themselves. Isn't that yeah. part of the. You have to learn how, though. Hmm. Yeah. Can you see yourself? I'm, oh, I, yeah, I'm, I'm still learning. I mean, what I was going to say is that for directors, director? <clears throat> I think that for directors, you, uh, you have to have a little of both. Meaning, if you're not somewhat self directing, especially in films, you're dead. Because a lot of them don't know anything about acting, they don't know anything about characters, they don't know any, they're very te they're technicians. In the theater, you're more likely to walk into the room and throw yourself into the arms and the trust of someone. If I'm going to work with Dan Sullivan, if I'm going to work with George Wolfe, if I'm going to work with some of you know uh, Greg Mosier or people like that, then I'm more likely to say, "What do you want me to do?" Yeah. Uh, in film, uh, many of the people who are working in the film, they you know you don't have an answer to that question. You have to become. <laughs> Very self-directing in that way. It's pa it's very painful that way. And I mean, I've been doing. I'm so sorry. I've been no. doing Millie for a year, over a year now, right. uh, eight shows a week. And my my direct. He's not there all the time. He'll come in every other month or so. So it really is up to me as an actor to maintain a level of the level of what I'm doing each week. Um, so many things play into it. The audiences and also the craft of how exciting you get eight times a week to try to do your best. But it is you have to be your own director in a sense because if you start going down the wrong path you have to be the one to keep yourself in line and keep telling the story. I, was, I, I think there's always for me a level of confusion about this. I, I've always known sort of, as an actor it's my job to um, produce a character. I'm always confused by actors who say I don't know what he wants me to do mm -hmm. because it's my job to produce a fully fleshed character. That's my job. Mm -hmm. It's not my, I don't think it's my job to sit there and have a director say, I want you to play like this, this, and this. Mm -hmm. I think it's the director's job to say, does that fit into my 
big scheme of mm -hmm. things, and if not, then we can modulate. Right. But my job is to produce a fully fleshed character. Mm. You got to come in prepared. That's right. Yeah. You got to do the work before the first day of rehearsal, and then hopefully the director will guide you. You know, together you guys can guide down the right path. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk a little bit more about your preparation, but first we're going to have a pause to hear some words from Isabel Stevenson. Before we get back to the American Theatre Wing's Working with Theatre Seminar on Performance, I would like to remind you that these seminars are only one of the many year-round programs undertaken by the American Theatre Wing. You are probably familiar with the American Theatre Wing's Tony Awards, given for achievement of excellence in the Broadway theatre. But we also have an important grants program, providing aid to off and off-off-Broadway theatres. We have also expanded our scholarships to promising students to pursue studies in the theater arts. We offer a comprehensive guide to careers in the theater to those seriously interested in entering the profession. As a long-established charity dating back from World War I and World War II and our famous stage or canteen, all of our programs are designed to reward and promote excellence in the theater. We just love to introduce young people and their families to theater and the magic it unfolds. We take great pride in the work we do, and remain grateful to our members and everyone else whose contributions help make possible the dynamic programs of the American Theatre Wing. Our work is so important to the theatre and the community, and we are proud to be a part of this exciting industry. So now, let's return to our panel on performance and those wonderful people who have given their time and energy and knowledge to make this program possible. And our moderator, Peter Lindstrom, would you please go on and thank all these people for me too as thank well. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you. And all of you. Now I want to ask this very astute panel a very serious question, and it is this. What do you do when the prop's not there, the door doesn't open, the gun doesn't go off? <laughs> Alan? <laughs> I go through the window. You go through the window. <laughs> I went through the window where the door wouldn't open. <laughs> and that's smart of you. I, I, I did a play, and the doorknob falls off the door, and the door is facing downstage, fourth wall. So the wall is the house. And I am doing streetcar, and I've got to go, and I got to go pick her up and do Stella, Stella, Stella. And all the guys throw me in the shower. And they all run out, and they slam the door, and the knob falls off. <laughs> so I come out of the shower to go get my wife and apologize to my wife, and the door knob falls off. And there's a screen inside the door, because you're in the south. And what I should have done, <laughs> and I would never let this out, we'll never make this mistake again, we learn as we go, is I should have put my fist through the screen as the person would have done, and opened the door with the other knob and let myself out. But instead, I stood there. And I walked around the door. <laughs> and the audience erupted into the biggest laugh I ever got in the history in the run of the show and applauded. And then when I came back, I realized, after the fact I have her in my arms, that the other knob is off. So this time I wasn't going to be outdone. And I kicked the door off its frame and it broke right off the frame. That's pretty my good. My favorite thing is, is of everybody who's worked on the show, there was nothing like New York stagehands in the world. And the New York stagehands, I used to say to them one time, I'd say, I'm going to punch the table. 
and I punched this, really, it was a heavy, heavy oak table. And I would say that line, I'd say, uh, remember what Huey Long says, every man is a king. And I am the king around here, and don't you forget it, I'd say to my wife, to uh, Blanche and her sister, and to Stella. And I kept punching the table, and I, I crushed my knuckle, and my hand was numb. So I said to the stagehands, could you cut this section of the table out and put like a foam pad in there for me? And I want to be able to punch the table. And the stagehands literally stood there, like two or three of them, and they went, you want us to cut the corner of the table out for you, Mr. Baldwin? And put some foam there so you can smash the table with your hands? Why don't you do something else? Why don't you say, and I am the king around here. <laughs> <laughs> Or, or hit yourself on the thigh, man. <laughs> I am the king around here. I thought you'd do another gesture. You don't have to punch the table. It's a lot of work to cut the table out. Eddie, did you have uh, an experience? What, what did, did you think they had a point? Or they just, <laughs> pardon me? Did you think they had a point? Or you... I, I, maybe the, these stagehands must know a lot of things. I don't know, yeah. So I, I think the rest of the show, I wound up hitting myself in the chest. No, but I, I, <laughs> I go up like an ape. I, like, I am the king around here. But I'll never forget the Then when I kick the door off, the hinge in that scene, then that's the, there's a curtain after that for the, for the first act. And I come back, and they're all standing in the wings, and they're all going, oh, that's bad. <laughs> that's so bad. We're never going to be able to fix that before the next act. Why couldn't you go around again? You did it once. There was no shame. No shame. Go around again. Anybody else have a, the prop not there? <laughs> all, all your props are there, Brian. You never. I, I, yeah, I've been fortunate. You've been I, lucky. I, I, I'm sure there haven't been. <laughs> I probably put them out of my mind. I can't think of. A Did you ever forget your lines? Oh man, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the worst one was in the middle of. Uh, in the middle of a song, Where is the Life That Late I Led during Kiss Me Kate? I was always terrified of that song. I blew those lyrics when I auditioned that song. Oh. And I thought, oh man, I just can't, I, this song just won't go. Every night I was terrified that I would forget the lines for that song, and one night I, I did. And I just, usually I can make up lyrics pretty quickly and usually make them rhyme and make <laughs> this one this time. <laughs> I was just started saying nonsense words and nothing came out. And finally, I just stopped the show. Oh, I just said, <laughs> the audience knew I was in trouble. What else can you do? I stopped the show and I look at Paul Gemignani and I say, Maestro, help. And he looks up at me and looks down where his score wasn't and goes, no! <laughs> so, the oh, they laugh. You know, that's again the, one of the fun things about the theater is it, people love being there when something, when something goes wrong. Yes. 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 And it's yes. yes. the night he drives. Exactly. And that show was yeah. so much fun and so silly anyway. They're already in the mood for that. So they just love it when something like that happens. So thank God they were in good humor. And we got back on show, uh, track, and of course, at the end of that, I think I got the biggest number I ever got. Oh, sure. in, in <laughs> Sutton, yeah. did you have a, a prop not appear? Um, well, I I have more of a of a of a <laughs> getting <laughs> or a, a breaking uh, character. I'm not proud of it, <laughs> but it is probably. <laughs> we have a scene in Millie where uh, it's me, uh, Millie, Jimmy, and Mr. Graydon, and we do a. It's a very serious scene, and we stand up and sit down, and it's uh, this sort of very far scene and um, I'm on stage with I was on stage with Gavin Creel and Mark Kudish who always tend to have little twinkles in their eyes as if something could just send them over the edge Mark Kudish especially 
<laughs> but one night I, I, I say a line, sad to be all alone in the world, and the audience applauded, and, and Mark Kudis just held for the laugh, and I was frozen like this. And I went, <laughs> <laughs> and then all I saw were Gavin and Mark's shoulders going, and I thought, oh no, we're gone. And then the audience realized that we were laughing, and they oh, started laughing, oh. and it was over. I literally at one point had my hand, head in my lap going, just just go! Someone say a line! Just go! And, 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 and Mark Kudis was like, we have to start over! We have to do the whole scene over! And I'm like, oh my gosh! And he made us do the entire scene over. It was one oh. of the most, it was like the Carol Burnett show. Oh I'm not proud gosh. of it, but oh it was probably gosh. one of the most exciting moments I've ever had on stage. <laughs> have you forgotten a line or had a door not open? This is a very dangerous thing to say. I've never yet. Oh. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> and Brent, has something happened to you? I, I had a situation once on stage. It was very similar to this. Uh, we played, uh, the audience was pretty much where you are, a little bit closer, actually. And I was playing with an older gentleman, and it was, he was playing my father. And uh, what I had to do, there was a blackout, and the two of us were on stage in a big easy chair. And, I, and during the blackout, I was to turn the chair find him, put him in the chair, sit at his feet, and the lights would come up. And uh, lights went out, I turned the chair, I reached for him, and I heard, <laughs> And I realized he'd gone into the audience. So I, it was completely black, and I stood at the end of the stage in the blackness doing this, and finally grabbed his hands, pulled him on stage, put him in the chair, lights came up, and it was a guy from the audience. <laughs> Yeah, we carried on. The guy With was him? actually a better actor. <laughs> <laughs> and that man <laughs> is Sean Penn. Suddenly, <laughs> you're the epitome of oh, you're going okay. out there and being a star. Now, how does it work with you now that you're militant? How did you get up? How did you get to be... Well, the difference between uh, going out and stand up on your own and, and, and doing theater, you mean? Right. Um, uh, well, you've got to stop to let other people talk, uh, which is always a bit weird. Um, well, no, no, that, well, actually, yes, that's the difference between improv and, and stand-up. Um, uh, but um, I, I always wanted to be an actor. See, when I was seven, I wanted to be an actor. So I, I, I never wanted to do stand-up. I wanted to kind of a... When I couldn't get any parts at school, I, I thought Monty Python was my big image. So I wanted to do kind of comedy like that, um, ca uh, com comic acting really, kind of Peter Sellers, Monty Python, and it's been a big curve round to getting to here. So I'm very open to learning. I've been through so much humiliation getting here, that, which is an important thing, because once I dumped uh, sketch acting, I learned street performing, and that was so humiliating that I, <laughs> I broke myself. People talk about going to acting um, um, schools, and, and they break you down and build you up sometimes, or they just annoy you, or whatever. <laughs> but I accidentally lost all my confidence. I was a real pushy, arrogant, pain in the ass, and I ended up as a, just a asking 
strange people how to street perform because I couldn't do this stuff. And when I eventually learned to do that, almost just by I couldn't think of anything better to do. Um, I applied that humiliation technique that if you learn something, a new um, uh, medium of performance that you have to go through a humiliating period where people say, this is rubbish, <laughs> and, uh, and get up to, hey, it was not so bad, and do, oh, it's quite good. So uh, now hopefully it's kind of, hey, okay. <laughs> Stuff in the right areas, pointing in the right direction. So I've just let it assimilate that. I'm, I, I wish to be a student when I'm uh, you know, 90 or 100 and saying, now I'm going to learn this. Um, because it, you can, I feel you can. If you know the center of yourself and the center of your creativity, you can. I feel you can apply it. You should be open to being down the Renaissance end of town of just saying, "Hey, I want to do this and I want to do that." You, I'm not sure if it's right, but I'm just open to learning. And, and hopefully, I can say, "I'm bad at that." Please tell me what to do, and just say, "I don't know." What's also weird is when you work with people that are playful on stage. And like when I did that Orton play, and I was so nervous, and I thought, you know, this is like being in church to me, and you had to take it all very seriously. And <clears throat> you're with someone who's really accomplished, like Joe Mahar, the late, great Joe Mahar, who there's a scene in the play, which is a big comedy, but he would take this book, and he was supposed to turn to Jelko Ivanik and I and say, you know, uh, you have before you a man who's quite a personage in his own way, Truscott of the Yard. And he would take a book, and with a flourish, he'd open the book to indicate from this, uh, you know, the annals of Scotland Yard, his place in this book. He'd say, you haven't met before you a man who is quite a personage in his way, Truscott of the Yard. And Joe would go and get male porno magazines <laughs> and cut pictures of male porn stars and glue them into the book. <laughs> you have before you a man who is quite a personage in his way. Truscott of the Yard. And our line was, it's you. <laughs> and Jelko would like, we should go, no, no, it's you. <laughs> It'd be like some guy like this laying on a bed. You know? <laughs> when you work with people like that, it is so insanity inducing. You know? Yeah, you're it's working with John Turturro. <laughs> you're working with John Turturro. Now, that's a, a personage to deal with, isn't it? Uh, well, well, in a sense, uh, I would have thought so too prior to working with him, but he's actually a very, very smart, very serious uh, actor, and uh, he doesn't really fool around. He, uh, he, he does his job really mm -hmm. well, and it's, it's just mm -hmm. exciting to be in his presence and watch him work. I have to ask you about your voice. When you sing, the two of you who have to sing uh, 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 such a long thing, d does, it, does your voice get tired and you, you have oh, vocal yes. problems with this? Uh, I, I've been doing Millie for um, a year, and almost a year and a half now. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, it is the hardest thing I've ever had to do. And I do yeah. all eight shows. And um, each week, I'm, it's a victory when I make it mm. through to each mm. Sunday by Sunday. I'm like, oh. It's just, a, it's just a goal to be able to do all eight shows. I pretty much, my entire life revolves around um, not talking too much. Mm -hmm. uh, I study with an incredible, we both study with the same teacher. Okay. I have a voice lesson every week. Um, I, uh, my voice is my life. And mm -hmm. it's really hard when, you know, if I can't sing, I can't perform. Mm -hmm. and, but it's also hard because my relationships have suffered. I can't, I can't go out. I can't go out and... Um, and talk or go out anywhere and have to speak over music or anything. So I really, I live a little bit like a nun and, and I just, but it's sort of the sacrifice that I pay for s starring in a show. And yeah. you must have the same thing. I'd like to know where they came from. I don't mean like, not from Brooklyn, but how did you get to where you are on the stage? Go to the school? Went to, uh, did accounting at Sheffield, um, which didn't help. 
Um, how did I get here? God, I don't know. That's yeah. I I, I was uh, uh, I did sketch comedy at the Edinburgh Festival from 1981. I spent a year watching television. Came out <laughs> as being a transvestite. Then went the street performing, uh, but not wearing any makeup. And then when that I'd, w once I got the hang of, when I've sort of broken myself apart and rebuilt, then it was street performing and the stand-up uh, from 88. And then when stand-up started taking off, I held it back, didn't try not to do, tried not to do television so I could do dramatic, try and do dramatic work. So I started from 1993 trying to just do dramatic stuff on film or theatre and then do comedy over that way. So I'm, I'm just a complete mess. <laughs> <laughs> Sutton, did you go to an acting school? I started dancing when I was four. I had boundless energy as a child, and my mom, as I was running into walls and things, my mom thought it might be a way for me to get some grace, and she was also a big fan of the movies. And, uh, but I grew up in a very small town in Georgia, uh, three different towns in Georgia and Michigan. And um, I started dancing. I really liked it, kind of had a knack for it. My, you know, and my brother did a, I have an older brother, Hunter Foster, who's also a Broadway performer, and he, um, he did a, production of uh, uh, Your Good Man Charlie Brown. He was sort of a bribe to be in it through our church. They needed a Linus, and they are like, you! And they made him do it. And he was like, oh, I don't know. We're these southern kids who've never... My father works for General Motors. My mother was a homemaker. Um, no one in our family is involved in the theater. And uh, we just sort of fell into it. And Hunter and I both kept... Uh, we were just good at it. And we just uh, kept doing community theater and high school theater and... Uh, moved to Michigan and just started working in professional little theaters around Michigan. And uh, they had a call for um, the first national tour of Will Rogers Follies in Detroit. And I went, I was 17, just Did you get 17. an agent? When I came to New York, I did. But later, much later, I had uh -huh. already been working professionally um, before I got an agent. But I was 17 years old, and I went to an open call for the first national tour of Will Rogers and um, was got a call back and was flown to New York. and. Never been to New York, was on the stage of uh, the Palace Theater, never been to a Broadway show, oh. auditioned for Tommy Toon and Cy Coleman, who were in the audience. I was a child, and <laughs> I got cast. And oh. next thing I knew, I was a senior in high school, and I was on the road with uh, Will Rogers oh. Follies. Oh. And then ever since then, I just sort of kept working. And I got an agent once I um, came to New York, and a, I was doing a, the national tour of Greece. Yeah. And uh, they had seen me in the show, and asked if I needed representation and said, yeah. Alec, did you go to a acting school? I went to NYU uh, drama school. And, uh, but you know, the thing that I think was most determinative for me was when I came <clears throat> into the business and I did, the, I did a soap, was the first job I had at 30 Rock. And it was one of the last half hour shows in New York. And so everyone in the cast could go do theater. And they had contracts oh, where cool. they would be get outs and they pre-taped their scenes. And it was interesting for me that my first professional gig, and this is why I say I learned so much from other actors, was the world I was in was a show that was a half-hour show that was an older show, and its audience was an older audience. The actors were older. It wasn't this kind of youth trip that soaps had become over the last 20 years. And every one of these people would uh, spend the summer break at a, at a summer theater. They do dinner theater. They do regional theater. Jim Pritchett, Lydia Bruce, Liz Hubbard, David O'Brien played my father, Val Mahaffey, Frank Luz, uh, uh, Johnny Panko was in the cast for a while, Tuck Milligan, all these people who, when we would sit around and talk, they all talked about the theater. And they all talked about, I'm going to go do Light Up the Sky, I'm going to do Guys and Dolls, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And it was by being 
around them at the, the, the early days of my career that I was indoctrinated into, I mean, they really basically said this without saying it, you know, you're nothing if you don't do theater. And I remember just this aching yearning, because I just kept working and doing TV and movies and TV and movies to just always run and do a play whenever I was available. And back then it was easier. You know, I was doing a play a year for about six or seven years until after 92, and uh, it became harder. But for me, my first jobs, I learned more on my first jobs about professionalism and how to save your energy and how to deal with... I'll just say one last thing, which I thought was interesting. I saw a guy the other day at a reading of a play, and he was wonderful. And I went backstage afterward, and I said, uh, I said, do you have an agent, and do you get a lot of work? I mean, I thought he was this really gifted young actor. He said, yeah. He goes, I got an agent. And I said, do you ever think of doing this kind of a program? Because he was a very deft comedian, and he was very funny. And he said, um, he goes, yeah, I don't think I'd want to be on one of those kinds of shows, like Saturday Night Live or whatever. He says, I really don't work well under pressure. And I thought, wow. <laughs> you know, there really is a significant difference between doing this. I mean, there are people who become professionals in this business, I believe, because they have something that people who don't become professionals don't have, which is when you work in this business, when the curtain goes up at 8 o'clock at night, nobody cares how you feel. <laughs> you know, nobody cares if your boyfriend just broke up with you or you're not feeling well. You can't whatever. give you, the disclaimer exactly, beforehand. Exactly. You've got to go out there. You've got to do it. When they roll the camera and they point the camera at a piece of air, you have to step in front of it and do what they're paying you to do. No one cares how you feel. And that way that you can, like you talk about how you control and manage yourself during the day in order to do the show. I would go to work sometimes and sometimes I, ha I knew, for me it's like an energy tank. You talk about the organ. And for me, I know how much is in the tank. So I'll go to work and I'll see someone and I'll go, well, how are you today, son? And she'll go, oh, my father isn't feeling well. He's very sick. And I'll be like, I can't know that now. <laughs> I can't know that now about you. I only have enough energy for me <laughs> to do the show tonight. Please don't talk to me about your family illnesses. <laughs> Fred, did you go to an acting school? Uh, I, I went to drama school. I mean, I went to uh, a college and mm -hmm. uh, was a theater major in college. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I came to New York and went to acting school here. Uh, I, I, my first impulse to be an actor, I think, was uh, when I was a very little boy, my, um, my mother owned a furniture store. And so we were one of the first people in Houston, Texas, to have a television. That's how old I am. <laughs> and uh, some of you might remember. Uh, you know Alec. Don't look at me like that. <laughs> I can't believe you didn't admit that. I can't believe you didn't admit that. Uh, we have a long way to go here in this business. <laughs> exactly. Uh, anyway, uh, this was back in the 30s. Uh, I, uh, in those days, they had uh, a, a test pattern on the television. First thing in the morning, last thing at night. There was a test pattern. And uh, my mother was a very smart woman, and she would put my brother and I in front of the test pattern first thing in the morning, and we would watch it for hours. <laughs> and, and it was an Indian. Do you remember the Indian had test pattern? Uh, and so the first thing I wanted to be was a test pattern. And, uh, uh, but they already had one. And, um, but that really encouraged me, and I, I think... Um, Claire, are you more a serious person? <laughs> Did you study... Uh, and I, I did. did yes, I did. Right. I did. But I, did, right. I didn't go till I was quite late. I didn't go till I was um. How old was I? Twenty-one. Oh. And um, 
because I had been so um, traumatized by my parents' rejection of my acting aspirations, I just, I, I really didn't dare say that's what I wanted to do. And I felt that everybody would think I was showing off. Hmm. And um, I came from quite a strict sort of academic background. And it just wasn't on to say you wanted to be an actress. You, you were supposed to go to Oxford or Cambridge and all of that. So really, I just sort of shut up about it. I did all those horrible jobs that people do when they don't really know what they want to do. And, um, but I, actually, I do remember how I'd, I applied for drama school because I was, I was working in a bar and um, around the corner from an uh, amateur theatre. And these people would come in every night and talk loudly, of course, <laughs> about the theatre darling and this and that and how marvellous it was. And I used to think, I hate these people. <laughs> and I'm going to do that. So I went around the corner to this theatre and said um, that I wanted to join in. And, and, and I did. And then two weeks later, the, the guy who ran it said, I think you should, you should audition for drama school. And I did, and I got in. Oh. And I was immensely surprised. And I have to say, I've been immensely surprised ever since, and I mean this, to, to work. It is a mm. constant surprise to me. Hmm. Um, I don't know if every other actor here is as insecure <laughs> yeah, as I right. am. Yeah, is, it, is it a surprise to you? Your, your career? Are you surprised? I say I'm the luckiest actor in the world. I cannot believe how blessed I have been from the beginning. I, uh, uh, from the time I started acting and got my card, I was 17 years old, I think. I was working Where in theaters. Where were you born? I was born in Seattle, but we moved around a lot. My dad worked for the Navy as a civilian, so I spent my childhood overseas, mostly in the Philippines and the Guam, and mm. Guam, San Diego, and... Uh, in Seattle and then I moved up to Los Angeles from there. Um, but I was very lucky in that one thing just kind of led into another. I never had to wait tables. I never had to pump gas. I really was always able to make a living once I, I left home at 17 solely as an actor. Now granted, I, you know, I was paying rent of $112 a month at that time and I was making maybe $400 a month at that time. But there was a way, of course, to, to make it all work. and, and uh, uh, and just one thing led to another, and I, I, I don't know why that is. I, I just feel so incredibly fortunate, but maybe part of it also has to do with I mean, a lot of it is just genetics, you know. Mm -hmm. um, you, you were asking the, the, about the voice and all of that yes. earlier. I don't have control over the way I look or the way my voice sounds. That's, I was, mm -hmm. that's a lucky that's accident. I got good genes from my father and my mother and, and whatever. And then, you know, that other lucky X factor that falls into place where you're just at the right place <coughs> at the right time. Mm -hmm. um, but it, the same goes, luck favors the prepared. And so I think part of it has been, for me, that I've always worked and, and tried to learn, but it's never been a, uh, an ordeal for me. It's always been a lot of fun. I think it's just because I love people and life and, and, and the world so much that it's always been a fascination for me. So, um, but I don't know, what is that thing that's led me from one job to another and taken me where I am now? And I have no idea. I'm just going to be, be quiet and be thankful. I think it might be talent. <laughs> you, well, you know, the, I, we I don't... Come, I'd like to hear the answer, <laughs> but we've come to the end of our program. <laughs> so we'll save that for the next time. Okay. Come on, I think it's your talent. I thank you all, and you do take my breath away. You really do. You are wonderful. Oh, no, you're just saying that now. I am. <laughs> I'll give you some of my breath, and then we'll get you that breath. That's getting sexual. I thank you all. This has been wonderful. It's really great to see you all and talk to you all. And that brings us to the end of this, the American Theatre Wing Seminar on Working in the Theatre. We're at the Graduate Center of uh, the City University of New York. Thank you so very much.